Hello and welcome to episode seven of Riding Unicorns. This week we have Harry Franks, who's the founder of Zego. We're really excited to have Harry on. Zego is a tech unicorn in the UK, having raised over $200 million. Harry worked in operations at various startups and he was the global head of procurement at Deliveroo. And that's where he first identified the problem that Zego is now solving. Yeah, it's super interesting how frequently we see successful startup founders actually recognizing the problem they sent out to solve in a previous scale up they're working for. So for any listeners out there who want to uh, become a unicorn founder, uh, perhaps go work for another unicorn, discover a problem, then solve it. Great advice. Right, let's get started. So Harry, we always like to start with just a quick intro from yourself on your career to date and how you got involved with Zego. Okay. Oh, I think my, my family probably said I had quite a checkered career, uh, never doing one thing for that long. So having left university, um, I, I went and traveled around the Arctic for a few months. And then when I got back from there, I worked for a, a very, very early stage startup, which was helping people um, get wheelchairs to get out of hospitals. Um, it was... I would say it was a kind of a bit of a social enterprise, but it's still going um, and really trying to address some of the problems with the NHS in that if you have a broken leg, but no one to look after you or a leg amputation, I should say, and no one to look after you, you could take up to 18 weeks to get out of hospital. And that's purely because they can't get a wheelchair to your bed that you can take home. So, you know, really simple problems. But that really got me into the, the sort of small business world, doing all sorts of different things from accountancy to, to growing the team, moving premises and things like that, which was really good fun. And, and micro mobility as well. Well, the early stages of micromobility, I actually, I think I still have a video of me kind of rowing around the office on a true mobility scooter, the old type. And then I went from there, I went to work for, for One Fine Stay um, in the very early stages. That's where I met Sten, actually. Uh, and so I did a number of different roles there, operational roles and commercial roles in the UK. And that was growing pretty quickly. So they set up a Los Angeles office, which I then went to support taking a bit of UK context and, and helping them scale that out there um, and then when I came back from the US uh, having lived over there for a while I was a consultant for a little bit just helping a small business but then got picked up by Deliveroo so I was global head of procurement at Deliveroo at a, you know during a phase when they were growing what, 15% week on week hiring two and a half thousand riders globally every week I mean it was absolutely crazy it was an amazing amazing environment to be in really great people uh, just just chaos, but kind of organized chaos. And, and I worked for some really nice people there as well. And, and I think it was there really that I, I started to look at some of the big problems that um, the Deliveroo and, and other on-demand companies were facing when it came to scaling up like this. So my role in, in procurement was was really to look at um, how we were allocating some of our funds, how we centralizing some of our payment structures. And, and, and what I saw was the drop-off of number of drivers that applied to actually work for companies like Deliveroo versus actually got on the road was huge. And if you go into that a little bit deeper, realized actually that insurance was one of the big problems as, um, as to why people dropped off. So you need to have commercial insurance in order to do the types of jobs that you see that the drivers and riders doing on, on their mopeds and, and in their cars. The only way that you were able to actually buy that type of insurance is annually. But these guys, of course, are only working for... A number of hours per week or uh, or days per month and so it, it just wasn't fair it meant that the cost of insurance actually outweighed the amount they could earn so it's just stopped them having access to that job and really that was the kind of problem statement that uh, that I started to really wrestle with at the, the kind of latter part of, of 2015 early part of 2016 and and then I spent quite a number of months working through that problem with Sten and then we actually said right look actually we think we've got 
both the scale here with the, the rise of this on-demand economy, the, the rise of companies like Deliveroo, and we think that we could actually build a business out of there. So, so we started to, to develop Zigo. How long are we now? Six years later, here we are, um, still going, still facing some really interesting problems, but enjoying trying to solve them. Yeah, nice. And then you, you raised your sort of first VC round from Local Globe, and then mm. how did that come about? Was it a competitive process, or did you get an intro and it all moved pretty quickly? How did it happen? I think we had the real advantage of, of having been in, let's say, kind of ultra high growth companies up to that point. So I think I can even remember some of the body of the email that we sent into Robin. I think it was, we've worked at this company, we've worked at this company, we know what we're doing, let's have a meeting. And actually, we had a very positive first meeting. I think we were running most things off spreadsheets and some half-cooked PowerPoint slides. Um, but we had a very positive first meeting. And I think from memory, we're given our first investment opportunity at the end of the second meeting. So it all went well. It's really interesting when you go through that first stage, there are lots of different people who you know, have money and they are able to give you money. But we learned very quickly that you know, money isn't everything. You really want to make sure you're getting investment from the right type of people, both from a personality point of view and, and people who can help you in, in ways other than just funds, because there's so much more to, to building a business than just raising cash. And how did you and Sten come together and decide you wanted to work on this? So I met Sten, as I was saying, at one fine stay. I worked for him for a while, but we just became quite close. And we were quite similar in a lot of ways. But at the same time, he's incredibly determined he's incredibly capable very very focused and i saw when i was working with him that he was someone that i would just love to stay close to in the future when i started to think about this this business i went to him to kind of help me just almost like a uh, give me an agenda to work through to make sure i got to that point because you know i'd never started a company before he had a number of times and successfully and so we, we got to this point and we, he then set me this kind of timetable of stuff to do. So he said, well, you need to have delivered your first version of your business plan by this date. And if you haven't, you have to buy me delivery for dinner. And that's kind of the way it works. So we had this like quite aggressive timetable. And I think I ended up spending quite a lot on delivery to make up for my lack of planning. Um, have you got a discount? <laughs> I wish. But we then got to the point where because I was almost like showing my work up to somebody else. One, I had kind of an, another level of accountability uh, and I quite, I guess, quite proud person. So I wanted to make sure it was quite good, which was helpful. But in doing so, he was able to see actually what I was able to see in where I thought this business could go in the long run. And then it was a conversation around, well, you know, how could I get Stan involved? At that point, I think he had been offered COO of another startup. And so we actually sat down, we're very open with one another and had a conversation about what this could be, how we could get to that point of, of launch and how we would actually work it between the two of us. And I, I read a lot during that time around how important your co-founders are and how you should overcome some of those kind of ego traits around saying well you know this is my idea actually it would never be where we are today if i had actually thought that way and so we had a very sensible conversation about you know what it would mean what it had to mean for him as well as me and i remember having that conversation in patisserie valerie underneath uh, delivery in the early early part of 2016. so what was like your first sort of big win when did you think god we, we've got something here well, I think, I mean, I would say bringing Sten in is a little bit unkind. We built this together. There's no doubt about it. And then we had Stu who, who came in and built all the infrastructure for us to get to that MVP. And, and so there are three of us in this. 
what was our first big win? Um, I think it was probably actually managing to engage with the insurance market and get insurance capacity that allowed us to sell our first product. One of the challenges with InsurTech is, is unless you build your insurance company from scratch, which is incredibly hard to do because you haven't got any history, you have to work with other people's balance sheets. And, and so getting someone who would put their faith in us in the same way that a VC might put their faith in us and say, okay, we think that you're onto something here. We think that you can actually price this correctly, distribute this the right way, control it the right way, and people will buy it. And effectively putting their balance sheet behind us was a huge, huge moment. And that was a, a great win. Uh, it was done over a, a lunch table. And I'm hugely thankful to that, to that first person who, who let us do it. Yeah. And so you, you sold to your co-founders to bring them in. You sold to the VC to get the money in and you sold to the insurance companies to to get them on board. So how important is it for founders to have sales skills? Well, I think um, it's crucial um, because all you do at the beginning really is, is sell. And I think, um, as you say, it's, it's all about selling for the big pieces and the big building blocks that build a business. It's, it's people, it's partnerships, it's backers. Um, and you've got to be able to sell, but have a very clear vision of, of what it is that you're trying to deliver. All of those other pieces, those kind of, operational requirements of setting up a phone system or a CRM or whatever it might be in order to actually kind of facilitate the business you can learn or you can buy in or you can get incredibly smart people to come and help you with but I think um yeah it's a it's selling it's cajoling it's persuading um but uh, I think it's crucial and if you if you know uh, what it is that you want to happen, then you can speak really passionately about it. And that's part of the sales process anyway. So um, I think there are, there'd be very few founders, I imagine, that couldn't sell their vision to, um, to all the people that get involved with their business. So how has your role changed from when you know, Zico was a two-person company to, to where it is today? And massively and, and and massively with kind of really good reason um so right at the beginning uh it, it was it was literally Sten and I because Stu came in a little bit later um and we did everything together you know <laughs> hand in hand went to every meeting um and and suddenly you realize that actually there's so much to do that you have to start splitting apart at that point I was CEO Sten was COO um and and really those early days as we've just been mentioning is it's just all about selling um and, and as the business grew, um, we got some very good early traction over the first couple of years. Um, uh, we went from two people to 50 very fast. Um, and suddenly the, the kind of stresses and strains on, on the, the CEO changes a lot. You start to have to manage a lot of your, your kind of internal team, external parties. You move quite a long way from, let's say, the, the kind of product call phase. And Stan and I realized about two and a half years in, we looked at the jobs that we were doing and the requirements of our roles and realized that actually we, we weren't in the right seat. And so we had a conversation, had a chat with our board, let them know that this was happening and, and Sten moved into the CEO role. And, and I moved into actually kind of going almost back to product and building different parts of the business again. And people sometimes think when I tell that story that it, it must've been a massive blow to my ego or, or just kind of, to my pride in some ways but actually I think it was the best decision that that we made I, I look back on it as a really sensible and and most definitely the right thing to have done for me and for the business and, and Sten and I always say you know what's best for the business this was best for the business but also it took a huge weight off my shoulders that I I, I wasn't probably dealing with that well I was, I was struggling quite a lot um 
and and subsequently the the areas that I'm now involved with within the business just play much more to my strengths. So supporting staying on a lot of the corporate side, working with external parties and going back to that kind of selling area and going back to what is the problem that we're trying to solve. So starting at kind of another little bit within the business around a key problem that we want to, to try and overcome. Super interesting. So we, we asked you about the best moment, but we wouldn't let you off without asking about the worst. So what is the worst or some of the worst um, or hardest moments in the growth journey? I think there's one standout single worst moments. We, we were told basically that the business had to shut the next morning. Um, I can't go into too many details, but we were within the first year um, and, and this was kind of nothing really to do with us. It was just that in insurance, the value chain is very long. There are a lot of quite large parties and something happened further up the chain, which basically meant that we were, we were told that everything had to stop. Now, for, for many businesses, that would be okay because you could almost stop sales for a period of time while you sort this out. But if you think that our, our customers are constantly interacting, so all of our drivers are automatically becoming insured the moment they log into Just Eat or whoever it might be, so if we were suddenly not able to do that, we would have a massive break. And that probably would be the, the, the nail in the coffin for us. And so we had, a, I would say, a fairly fraught 24 hours. And uh, yeah, let's just say that was the single hands down worst moment. <laughs> but then there have been lots of other really challenging times through fundraising processes um, and, you know, winning some deals, losing some deals. I personally have had some really tough times with kind of the, the team management and it, it's always going to happen when you're growing a team that quickly that there's, there's some things that kind of impact you quite a lot. But all in all, we've, I think we've made more decisions than we've made bad ones and, and we've been very, very lucky as we've gone through this process and it's uh, in a good place at this point. In those tough times, do you generally turn to co-founders or do you have VCs that you can talk to as well i mean where does the who's the sort of shoulder to lean on in that in those moments well i can safely say that um there is no way that well i i certainly couldn't i'm not sure sten could do doing this last five six years by yourself i take my hat off to anyone who has done it because it's um it's it's incredibly tough in so many different ways. It's amazingly rewarding in many, and, and actually having someone to celebrate as, as much as to commiserate with is um, is so important. And anyone who's thinking about going on this journey, I think making making a decision around whether you're going to do it with and how many people you're going to do it with is is really important. Um, when it came to the VCs, I mean, we can talk about VCs at length. It's obviously your your area of expertise, but um, you know selecting the right parties to 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 work with and and hoping you get the right parties to bring on board um, is really important and then they really do become part of the team and we work very very closely with them um i would have i wouldn't say that i i turn to i i have had to turn to them that much or um stan has had to turn to them that much in the past but i wouldn't um hesitate if if we needed to they're really a great team that we've um we've got within the business now and then the other side of it is friends and family. Kind of, I think when you you start, people don't realise how much of a kind of personal burden you take on. You're working lots of hours, you sacrifice lots of things, and when things really are tough, they're the first people that feel the brunt of your frustrations. And so, I think it's just really important to have a good, strong network in 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 every guise around you. Yeah, and so lots of people um, who've worked in startups for a while um, kind of think about starting their own business. And it probably takes, it's probably a hard thing for lots of people to, to make that leap. 
what was it um, in your journey that kind of told you this was the thing to go for um, and spurred you to take that leap? Or, or perhaps it was something you always wanted to do to start a business? Yeah, I, th- I think it's a really good question. Um, I, I think I always had it in my mind that I wanted to start a business, but it certainly wasn't front of my mind at that time in my life that um, I wanted to go and do it at this point. I just got a great job with an amazing company that I was loving. Um, and so I would say timing and, and fate played a lot into this. Um, as I started to look at this problem that was kind of evolving in front of my eyes and, and the way that I could resolve it in that role was to basically, well, I couldn't really, I just, more money was, was going to be spent. Um, it just, it started to just kind of, um, evolve into a business opportunity and the more I looked at it the more we looked at you know how could this go wrong what are those key dependencies what massive assumptions we're making and we got to a to a place where we felt quite confident that we could get to a certain place if we could get there we knew we could take a little bit further and then timing is all important at that point I was uh yeah was was living in London I had a girlfriend but you know not many other commitments I think if I had fast forwarded or had left it another couple of of years where married children, things like that, it it would have been a hell of a lot harder because it's a huge risk. You know, I left a a well-paid, good job and moved into, I mean, a a high-risk, zero-paid job for for quite some some time. And I think you have to be in the right frame of mind and also in in the right kind of situation to make it happen. But anyone who who I think kind of says, I want to go out and start a business, I I would absolutely back them to do it. But I, I would also say just words of warning is it, it is so consuming um, it's amazing but it does kind of take a lot personally i think um out of you what are the big trends that you're seeing i think insurtech's going through an interesting phase right now i mean there's a lot of money going into it it's almost a few years behind let's say banking and, and core fintech i think it's very interesting the different approaches that people are taking going full stack becoming the full stack insurance company or just acting as the distributor. And I think the amount of money that's coming in is is going to create a bit of polarity between the early stage companies where it's really hard to get to that next rung of getting sufficient premiums to attract the right sorts of uh, VCs and or to show the kind of benefits that this com- your, your company can offer to really get the growth. And then you get the, the full stack players. And on the full stack players, I think it's around I suppose premium is vanity to some degree. What you've got to really work out now is once you've got that massive scale, as we've seen from you know, a handful of insurtechs globally, is, is how do you then turn that into real um, profit or performance? And, and that's going to be the big challenge over the coming years. Um, I think it's it's going to be really fun to watch. Um, I'm really pleased, and I say to be in the, let's say, the, the kind of larger end, because entering the market now with all the turbulence that we've seen over COVID, et cetera, um, would, be, would be particularly tough. And then outside insurance, I think there's, there's a lot in kind of legal tech that I think is, has got a long way to come. If you think about the amount of time that, that we have had to spend on kind of corporate documentation and all the kind of governance that goes with that, there are businesses out there at a relatively early stage that are looking to address some of those challenges and are quite excited about some of them. You should take a look at Robin AI, which is a shameless plug for one of our portfolio companies. (laughs) But they're they're doing something in that space. might be useful. I'm interested in a couple of trends within InsurTech. One is P2P, and the other is insurance as a service more more broadly than micro-mobility. And I just wonder whether whether you guys have a perspective, whether you guys have thought about either of those, whether there's a 
whether there's an angle for P2P with, with Zego and, and also whether there's an angle to go more horizontal with, with your insurance services. Yeah, I think, so if we start with the, the second one, insurance as a service, yeah. I suppose we, we are doing that to a degree, but insurance, it's simple in some senses. You've got to pay enough so that in aggregate, um, when someone has a claim, you can pay it out. But it's really complicated in, in the sorts of coverage levels and, and, and as a result, the amount of different parties that are involved. So if you take motor, for instance, if you have a crash, you don't have a limited liability, but you, you, you therefore need to have huge balance sheets and that risk shared across a huge range of different companies, organizations globally to make sure that there is sufficient coverage and one company doesn't become uh, a kind of pinch point and, and, and not be able to actually pay out that claim. And so motor in particular, I think is really hard to get into a sort of P2P type, type thing. Insurance is P2P to a degree because everybody is paying into the pot which pays out for those claims. I think insurance as a service, though, um, you know, one thing that we built with our first products was this kind of idea that insurance should be embedded in something else that you do. It shouldn't, you know, everyone talks about the pain point is buying insurance. No one wants to go and say, I'm going to pay you for this thing, but I never think it's actually going to happen. I'm going to pay you for an annual product, even though I only use it for a short period of time. It's priced on some proxies based on know where I live. In fact, I work somewhere completely different. I drive only a little bit, but I pay the same as the person who, who's next door and then who drives a huge amount. So there are all these kind of these issues with it. And, and I think insurance as a service is, is in my mind, I, I can translate it as let's make it really frictionless. Let's put it in so that, you know, when I need the insurance, it actually knows the risk that I am creating and therefore I will pay for that risk. So if I want to go and, you know, um, jump in my car and do some deliveries, for the next couple of hours, I should pay a significantly higher premium because I am using my vehicle for something which is high risk, but I shouldn't be penalized over the course of that full year for those times that I'm not actually on risk. So I think insurance as a service being embedded is crucial and we will see this more and more. Peer-to-peer insurance is, but I'm not sure that in the purest sense it can get there for for some of those complexities. I've just got an endless list of questions. We're, not, we're never going to get through them. <laughs> well, I was going to ask Harry about getting bogged down in paperwork and things like that. Is there a potential IPO on the cards at some point in the future? We've got a lot still to do. And Sten has built around him an incredibly strong leadership team. They've got some very, very clear targets of what they need to hit over the next couple of years. We've just raised some, some really, really uh, helpful money from, from VCs. And that's going to give us lots of great opportunities. I think it, you know, it, it's probably heading in that direction, but we've got a lot of ground to cover. We've got lots more to do. Um, and I feel really confident for the time being, you know, we've got to continue what we're doing, i.e. we've got to hire more fantastic talent. We've got to expand into more geographies. We've got to improve our, uh, our products and our pricing through better risk selection. We've got to capture more data so we really understand that risk. Um, and, and that's quite a lot actually to be doing over the next couple of years the sorts of corporate side and where we get to, I think, you know, if we did get to an IPO, that would just be a milestone, not an end state. So that's certainly the way that we think. Let's go week by week. I think it's fascinating when companies like Zego, the founders are inspired from, from previous work and particularly that you get the sort of mafia groups from Revolut, from delivery, from all these big, the sort of star, the poster children of the venture landscape. And companies that come out of problems experienced in those startups what i wonder is how often you think these company companies like delivery 
build the solutions in-house and then someone takes them out because they have general applicability versus, you know, I mean, you, you've built something that is actually incredibly useful to, for delivery, right? And uh, I suppose the question that I'm interested in answer to is, has your solution unlocked a ton of growth for delivery and should delivery have built it themselves? So I think that the answer to the first part of the question is, is probably yes. Our products allowed more people to work part-time as opposed to the full-time flexible worker, which is what we were challenged by when I was there. You now have the, the true part-timer who can, who can operate. And, and in this world of so much demand for those types of drivers with the rise of this huge number of, let's just call them last mile grocery or food delivery companies, um, every person who can ride and drive is, is needed. Um, secondly, I think when we were there, there was no ability to actually get the right type of this, this type of insurance for cars unless it was a massive expense. And that really hampered growth in, in more uh, or let's say less urbanized area, more rural areas. And so I, I think it has been, I would say, from our general market penetration in those particular areas, we, we have helped. Um, should they have done it themselves? Um, I don't think so, honestly. Being an insurance company or uh, any sort of... Um, uh, distributor of financial products is heavily regulated. It takes, and, and that you just have to be very aware of, and it, it takes a lot of work to maintain. Uh, you, you know, it's quite an open book process with the, regulation, with the regulators. And I think you can't do everything. Being really focused on what it is that you want to deliver and, and hoping that other people will give you the tools and, and assets to allow you to, to be better is, is the way that you should think. And in, in someone like you know, Deliveroo's case, it would be a huge distraction from the other things that they are doing incredibly well. And the same with, with, with Just Eat, same with Uber. It would be another string to their bow potentially, but it would be quite a cumbersome one. for. So it would all be around that kind of cost-benefit analysis, I think. And what excites you the most about the next two, five, ten years of, of Zigo? Where do you where do you see that it could lead? Well, I think that the market that we operate in in kind of mobility is going through just an amazing revolution. You know, whether it's micro mobility, whether it's electric vehicles, or or how we actually use vehicles, um, and that has created some really interesting challenges for lots of things. Whether it's charging, parking, but insurance is another one. Um, and, and I suppose just as I got quite excited about this problem that kind of I saw when I was working in a different role in a different company, and I thought God, that's quite exciting to try and solve, I still feel the same today. It's how, how can we use what we have learned over the last five years? How can we collectively, with this amazing team and amazing colleagues, pull together some great solutions for these huge challenges, which, you know, they're challenges today, but they're only going to grow over the next five years. And so it's massively exciting just thinking, where we can get to. And on the flip side, I think it's quite, the traditional markets really do struggle by virtue of how big they are. It's huge behemoths of, of insurance companies when, when a lot of the solutions need to be quite detailed and, and very technical. I feel that in some areas we have an unfair advantage. In other areas we don't, but that gives us you know, a great opportunity for the future. Yeah, well, it's very exciting. So uh, Harry, when we get towards the end of these, we like to ask people if they could have three guests that are business lunch, who would they invite? I'm glad you prepared me for this one. So I, I had to think about things that I was interested in. I'm really interested in kind of efficiency and how we can do things like standardize lots of processes. So I thought it'd be pretty interesting to have a chat with Henry Ford on the back of that. 
And then I, I read an article about Warren Buffett, not so much about his amazing uh, investments, but actually about the fact that he has a completely empty diary and he keeps it that way all the time. And he's not kind of back to back with meetings all the time. And I'd love to talk to him about with an empire the size that he has, how he actually can manage his time and how he can delegate work that effectively. I just think that's, it's, it's amazing. You would never see him stressed, I don't think. And then thirdly, if you said it's a business lunch, so I've only got an hour. I think it'd be quite fun to have like a loose cannon in there. So I think, you know, Elon Musk drinking or smoking something in the corner would be awesome. It would just, you know, he's quite a, he's quite a you know, big thinker. And I think that's, you know, we've got some really interesting big thinkers within the business and on our board. And I, I'd really love the way that they kind of challenge the status quo. So I think that would be quite interesting. Yeah, really interesting. I didn't know that about Buffett. I'm one of those people where my, my every minute is accounted for in my diary. And so there must be something in it around kind of keeping a clear mind and sort of staying focused without booking up loads of things that are not necessary to the core role. Um, yeah. I guess he started his career in a time where he didn't have a digital calendar. So maybe it's just yeah. what he used to. <laughs> However he manages it, I'm, I'm very envious. Like, I like you and I'm, I'm very driven by my diary. Yeah. Harry, thank you so much for coming on to Riding Unicorns and, and telling us about your, your Riding Unicorns journey. Really interesting. I think there's some absolute golden nuggets in there about picking the right co-founder, the right investors, the commitment it takes, the highs and the lows. So it was great to hear. And yeah, just we wish you all the best with Ego. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks, Harry. This week's Startup Spotlight is omnipresent. Uh, they're a company who make it really easy to hire on board and manage remote employees, uh, making it super easy to, to hire people anywhere in the world. I wanted to, to make this one our startup spotlight because it's so relevant in our um, new world of remote work, remote first work. It's such a painful thing, has been such a painful thing in the past to hire people abroad that it's stopped people from doing it, which of course just limits your pool of available talent massively. So we're seeing loads of companies using Omnipresent um, and expanding that pool of talent that they can pick great employees from. And that obviously just opens up a whole world of opportunity for them, paying great people less money in different countries, making it super easy, getting better talent than is available near you. So yeah, if, any, if, if anyone has a company that's looking, for ta- looking to hire talent elsewhere, then they should definitely check out Omnipresent. And also they are growing incredibly fast. Um, and it's a wonderful place to work. So you should take a look at the, the open roles there too. That's it for this week on Riding Unicorns. Catch us next time as we have Eamon Carey, Managing Director at Techstars on. Subscribe on your favourite podcast platform for all episodes.